All right, well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, my name is Taylor, and I'm the relational ministry leader here at Life Church. And today, we're going to be talking about the book of James. Every time you see me, that's what we talk about. And we have one more uh, chapter to go through, but today we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 in the book of James. And a little bit of context again, if it's your first time here, we want to welcome you, but just kind of fill you in on what we've talked about throughout this book of James. So the first thing to remember is that James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's now the leader of the church. And when he writes this letter to the, to the Jews or the Jewish tribes in dispersion, he's basically challenging them to live this Christ-like life. So these believers in Christ now are challenged in the new way and the new laws and traditions and ways things are, are being held in the early church. And James is when we read something like a, the book of James, it's very simple, very practical. And then you put yourself in James when life tries you or tests you, and James tends to read itself a little bit different. And while James is a very challenging book, I think today we might see glimpses of the gospel that James kind of places there for us to reflect on. See, normally when we're talking about James, we're talking about how we as Christians need to be doing something, and while he's going to talk about that and hit that point home, I want to be able to reflect on the reason that we're doing this. And specifically today in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, there's not really a theme, I guess, per se, in James chapter 4, verse 1 through 12, because each verse is very unique. But I think we could summarize it to say that it's about submitting to God. We're going to talk about fighting and quarreling amongst believers, and we're going to talk about how the root of all that really has to do with our selfish ambitions and desires. And we're going to talk about how we can communicate to God in prayer through this. And James is going to give us this list of commandments. I refer to them as the commandments in James, but that's not really a thing. It's just a way to help us remember that James is giving us instructions and things that we need to do as believers. And at the end of this, I hope we can reflect upon where we stand with God and how we can place ourselves into submission to what God has called us to. So, verse 1, chapter 4 of James says this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And I'm going to pause there for just a second. I'm going to break this up a little bit. So the first thing James says is that we have fights and we have quarrels. And that doesn't exist. And what he's not talking about is between us and the world. What he's talking about is between the body of Christ, between believers. That within ourself, there is this sense of selfish ambition that arises, our selfish passions and desires. And that's the reason that we would fight and quarrel. And if you remember back, and James is really good about doing this, the way that the, the text is written, is he goes back and forth and he references things he's already said and shows you it in a new light. So if you were with us when I preached on um, the two types of wisdom, we talked about worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And part of what it meant to have worldly wisdom were these attributes of selfish ambition and jealousy or envy. And that if we possess those qualities or those attributes, that we would have opposition in our lives, that we would have every evil practice and disorder. And James is saying part of the root of these fights and these quarrels are found within that, that selfish ambition for our circumstances in life. And as believers, we find ourselves in the midst of quarreling when that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And he says, 
you don't have any of these things and these, and these arguments or these fights. You don't have the peace. You don't have the, the wisdom. And he tells us it's because part of it is that we're so harsh with our words. We're so harsh with the things that we say. If you can put yourself in a situation with a loved one or another believer, oftentimes we get ourselves in over our heads. And what he's saying is when you write someone off with your heart, like maybe you've done it or maybe you've had someone do it to you, when you write someone off with your heart, it's like murder, right? Now, James's culture was very familiar with murder. Part of the, the culture in James's time, think about the Roman Empire, was if they wanted to enlarge their territory, they were going to go to the land that they wanted to seek or that they were seeking, and they were going to, you were either a part of our empire or we were going to murder you. Or think about the religious persecution they're dealing with in the first church, that you will believe in our gods or we would just murder you. So James is coming from a place where murder, I would say, is more evident then than it is today. And we're talking about believers. And so when we talk about this idea of murder, Jesus echoed this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, yes, one of the commandments is that you shall not murder, but if you hold on to this deep-rooted anger within yourself, it's like murdering someone with your heart. It's the same type of judgment. And we see this all throughout our lives. Maybe you've been in or are in a circumstance where you and another believer, whether that's a spouse, someone you're dating, uh, a family member, or just another you know, member of the body of Christ, when you've been in a situation where you get into conflict and there's no resolve, and you stop talking to one another, and you create that barrier, that wedge between one another, and now you've written someone off, he's saying that's like murdering someone with your heart. I think this is the test that James is presenting to us is to say that when we get into those quarrels and those fights and this division rises among us, when your back is against the wall, what do you have to say to someone else? How is that, how is that glorifying God? Because really what it's doing is just further dividing the church. And so he's saying if we would just consider the relationships that we have with other people, maybe we wouldn't be in this position but he's challenging us to say that, no, you so badly disagree with someone, you've murdered them with your heart. I've done funerals, and I've seen this everywhere. You know, like when someone dies in your, your family or another family of friends, and when the families should be coming together and uniting and grieving together and mourning together, they're fighting over material things. And James is like, We're, you're believers, so why is this there? It's because of our selfish ambition that rests within us. And he's going to tell us something else at the end of verse 2. Back into verse 2, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He says you don't have the wisdom. You don't have the peace. You don't have the resolve in the fight because you're not asking God for it. And if you are asking God for it, you're asking wrongly. You're asking for your own gain, essentially, is what he's saying. And the famous theologian Charles Spurgeon, if you're aware of him, he said, you have everything available to you by asking God, and nothing is available without asking. So we need to consider how vital our prayer is. But if you've put yourself there, and I've done it more often than I would like to admit, put yourself in, that, in the middle of that fight, your prayer to God sounds something like this. God, I pray that you would change their hearts so they can see what I see. 
God, I pray that you would, you would soften them so they can understand that what I'm saying is the right way of doing something, right? Because we're stuck in these arguments, not just for the sake of fighting, but because there's this attachment to something. There's, there's this investment that we're making in the middle of our quarrels, and we're asking God for someone else to be changed, for someone else to see things the way we see them. But James has already taught us something about this. He said, but if you, if you lack the wisdom, ask God for it who gives generously to those who ask. He said, why not position your prayer to a place to say, Lord, I don't understand, but I trust you. Can you help me? Give me the wisdom or give me the knowledge of what I need to do. Lord, use me, change my heart so that I can see resolve take place. But he says, even in our prayer life, we're selfish with the way we treat other believers. But think about what's, what's the Lord's prayer? It's that his will would be done every time we pray. I wouldn't say every time, but most of the time when we pray, it's so that our will, our wants, our ways can be done. But understand when we pray to God, think about it. If you're praying that your circumstances become better, would God ever honor something that removes him from the equation? You know, like, if you think about the way you are praying right now, is it focused on making everything around you better? Or is it, is it, is it taking the circumstances that you have and making them known to God and asking him and to lay it in his hands and to trust him? Because oftentimes we're trying to move God into our circumstances, right? And really we should be moving to where God is and asking him for that wisdom throughout uh, our, our troubles and our trials. And he goes on in verse 3 and he says that you're spending what you get on your own selfish desires. What he's saying is, it's, it's also found in Luke 15 when we talk about uh, the prodigal son when we talk about the wasteful spending that the prodigal son had, he's saying that when you're asking for these things, it's the same response. That you're, you're using it for nothing. You're using it for your own gain. And he's saying, no, what you should be asking for should be coming to my presence so that we can have a conversation with God. And if we can learn to communicate our prayers properly to God and position ourselves in such a way, would the quarrels and the fights continue on the same way? So I think that's why James is presenting this is because it would change the quarrels and the fighting because we would begin to align ourselves with his will and not our own. But James goes on and he makes a really uh, bold accusation here and we're going to talk about it. He says in verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He says you're adulterous people. That's a huge claim. In the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by sin. Or by, by death, sorry. It is sin. Adultery was punishable by death. And he's saying we're adulterous, but he's not talking about sexual adultery here. He's talking about a sense of spiritual adultery. And as I was trying to open this up, I, I couldn't help but think of the relationship in a marriage. And whether you're married or desiring to be married, you just need to understand the concept of marriage when I use this uh, analogy. But when we talk about marriage, 
we say husband is married to a wife and they form a union where two flesh become one, where their hearts are devoted to one another, right? Till death do us part. We make that covenant before God. And throughout scripture we read, and I I said this first service because it is true, I've talked with many people, but one of the controversial texts, though it's still scripture, is wives submit yourselves therefore unto your husbands. But the representation in the Bible is yes, wives submit yourselves therefore unto your husbands. But when we talk about it, we're also saying church, which is a representation of the wife, submit yourselves to Christ's representation of the husband because Jesus is the bridegroom and he will return again. So we talk about wife, submit yourself to the husband, or church, submit yourself to Jesus. Why would you submit to him in the first place? Well, it's because when Jesus was here on earth in his role of the bridegroom, he perfectly filled and fulfilled his ministry here. He filled a role so perfectly that we would have no reason but to submit to him. Because of the finished work on the cross, we owe it to God to submit to him. But we find a barrier in today's world when husbands aren't being husbands. And then wives have to question why they're submitting to that person. So understand this. This whole concept of submitting yourself would mean that as a man, you should be filling the role and doing what God designed you, living a godly life, living your life based on biblical principles. And we know we're not perfect, but if you're adhering as best as you can to that, submission wouldn't even be a question. It's not saying, woman, you're under man, because there's still things man has to do. He has to honor his wife. There's things that women can do that men can't do. It makes this like a mutual relationship where our hearts can be devoted because we're trying to be the best that we can in that God-given role, right? And if a husband is doing everything that he can to fill that role, what reason would a wife have to ever leave him? There's no answer for that because there's no reason a wife would leave a husband who's faithful and does what the Bible says. But if she chose to be adulterous and leave him, why would that be? It'd be because it was her own selfish desire to do so, right? If you think about this in the context of our relationship with God, we are married, the church, to Christ. And if God is saying, I want your heart, who are you to share that with the world? That's why he's a jealous God, because he sent his only son to die on the cross for your sins, and he gave you his Holy Spirit. So he's jealously yearning over that spirit that he's given you. And when you're adulterous in a relationship, you're not sharing your heart anymore with that one person. You're sharing it with someone else. That's what he's saying here. You adulterous people, because you choose to be a friend of worldly things, you can't do that. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. Yes, we live in this earth, but our citizenship should be found in heaven. We're talking about believers here. Yes, you can be in this world, but not of it. So how are we posturing ourselves to be in a place where, God, I am devoted to you? Because would fights and quarrels exist the same way if we devoted our hearts to God instead of worldly ways? This is something I think we need to continue questioning as we go on. And James uh, opens up uh, another idea before we jump into verse 6. Sorry, guys. Before we jump into verse 6, he says this. But if you continue, the adulterous people, if you continue being a friend of the world, you know what you become? 
an enemy of God. I've read the Bible front to back, and I don't see anywhere in there where I would choose to be on any team but God's team. So this is a challenge to us Christian believers. He goes on, though, and he says this in verse 6. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He knows we're not perfect. He has to give us this grace because by nature, we are sinful people. And if you know this, and if you are a Christian, a professing and believing saved Christian, you'll know that it takes time to walk away from our past. And it's a process, and it's not easy just to step out of one life and into another and say, yeah, this is easy. I have to get rid of things. I have to deny my flesh every day. I have to take up my cross. There's things that I have to do in my life that make it challenging. But James right here is saying that he gives you more grace because it's easier to fall back. But he knows that with that grace, the thing that you can never earn, that he can keep pushing you deeper into a relationship with him. We know he gives grace, but he's saying he gives us more. And as I was reading this, I found an analogy of grace that I think I, I really think I like because it can be interpreted in different ways, but you know like when someone's struggling and going through a hard time in life or they lose a loved one, uh, we often, our response is to give someone flowers, and I'm not saying that might not be your love language, but generally like you would give someone flowers in hopes of, hey, we're here we know you're struggling. We're trying to help you through something. We're here for you. We want to see you get through this thing, right? But often our problem with grace is that we're not seeing it or viewing it the way God's been giving it to us. Let me tell you, when you fall back into a place of I don't see, I don't feel God's grace, it's not because he's not giving it to you. But it's probably because the lens in which we're viewing it isn't the right lens, because God giving grace isn't like giving us flowers. The analogy is that it's like giving us seeds. And when you get seeds, you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? Because we want to see the outcomes the way we desire them to be. And we have an idea of how God should be saving me and delivering me because I know what would work best for me. And then God gives you something that you don't expect. That's why we're not seeing it. But it's always there, whether you choose to see it or not. He gives more grace, but he gives more grace to those who are humble. He gives more grace to those who can admit that I'm not enough, that I need the saving grace given to me so that way I can be presented before the throne because I am a sinner at heart. We need more grace. He then goes on and he says, Verse 7 through 10 are where we talk about the commandments in James. They're not, again, not really a thing. But there's this list of commandments in here you can draw out. He says this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He says, in these verses, he says that you should submit to God. That you should resist the devil. 
that you should draw near to God, that you should purify yourself, and that you should humble yourself. And this is a very bleak text in Scripture when we read it. He's saying mourn and wail and weep and basically don't be happy. So is happiness bad? No. But God's concern is with our holiness. His concern is with with making us blameless, right? Happiness is a byproduct. It's great to have, but that's not the sole purpose of what God's trying to do in the redemptive work of saving us. Now, and when we talk about submission, I think this was something, it was a big barrier to me. Uh, On my conversion or when I was brought to my faith, one of the things I couldn't comprehend was really what I'm, what, what is submission? Like, I get it, like, submit, but how? Like, what is that? And in the beginning of my faith, I believed, I always believed. I said, yes, God's real. Yes, he created the heavens and the earth. I just don't feel him or I don't see him moving in my life. And I didn't understand the sovereignty and the power that God has. I had to spend time learning who God is because at the end of the day, who do you submit to? Yes, the answer is God, but you submit to someone who you trust, who's proven themselves to you, who fills their role perfectly, and more importantly, it's someone that you know. And so where I had to start was getting to know who God was before I could ever submit to him. And that meant what I did, for, and it worked for me, and it might be different for you, I spent one chapter, and I mean every single day, vacations, whatever, sickness, one chapter every day, it took me three and a half years to get through the Bible. But I was devoted to knowing who God is, and this is what trips me up. As I was learning more and more about God, I was like, I would have to be crazy not to submit to this guy. If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, like I've said before, there's no reason you would want to be on any other team. And as we're talking about submission, if you were with us for Eve Eve, uh, Mike talked about how Jesus is our rescuer. And this drawed something out of me because, is it drew or drawed? I don't know. Put a red mark on my paper on that one later. But drew myself, drawed myself, draw something out of me, Okay. I was in the military, and part of what I was trained for uh, was an open ocean environment where there's a survivor, and I need to rescue them, right? And rescues don't happen on sunny 75 calm water days while everybody's hanging out at the beach. I mean, actually, they do, but not these kind. These kind are worst-case scenarios, you know? Something, Something intense has happened. And I'm trained to deal with what we call a combative survivor, There's all kinds of circumstances that lead up to this, but a combative survivor, what's important is to to know that they don't desire to be rescued, which is kind of mind-boggling. Because if you've ever been in the middle of the ocean where you can't see land, I can't imagine not wanting to be saved, but that's a thing. It's for many different reasons, but we train to it, and one of the things we do is just not waste our time on it. Like, I know it might shock some of you, but several years ago, I was in really good shape and could outswim nearly anybody. And I'm talking like, if this guy's struggling in the water and he doesn't want to be saved, I'm like, all right, well, I can just sit here and and wait it out. Or I can just get in the helicopter and you can sit here and tell me you don't want to be rescued. But there's going to come a time in this situation where the combative survivor is going to have to process the idea of drowning 
which is a fear for almost everybody, and dying the slow death, when you're faced with that situation, 99.999 whatever percent of people want to be rescued. And think about this. If Jesus is our rescuer, or if God is our rescuer, the longer we take to resist and not submit to the rescuer, the longer it's going to take for the rescue to take place. Do you understand how God's still going to sit there and rescue you, but it's up to you to surrender to him? But what's crazy is we've twisted this, and James doesn't say resist God, obviously. He says resist the devil. So how do you do that? Well, understand, when we talk about resisting the devil, we're not assuming a few things. We're not assuming that as a saved Christian, you can be possessed by a demon. We don't believe scripture teaches that. Maybe you have a different outlook on it, but as a saved Christian, where the Holy Spirit's dwelling within you, we don't believe you could be possessed by a demon. But the other big thing to note about this is when you resist the devil, you cannot do it alone. You cannot do it apart from God because we have a sinful nature. So if we know those things, how can we then resist the devil? What is it going to take? The only way you can resist him is being in the presence of God. It's the only way you can do it. If you submit to him and you can be in his presence, then and only then can you resist the devil. You might say, well, if he's not possessing me and he's not, you know, leeching on to me and whatever that looks like, then how, is he re- how am I resisting something that's not there? But understand, resistance means that there is something there and it's pursuing you. It's constantly in pursuit of you. It's constantly tempting you. It's constantly trying to steal, kill, destroy. It's trying to throw you off track. It's trying to make you commit spiritual adultery. So when we talk about submission and we talk about submitting to God, it's not like, yes, in this circumstance, God, I'm, I'm surrendering everything to you. I submit to you, God, have your way. And then when that thing's done, you can step back and say, all right, well, there's nothing here. No man is without a master, so either you submit to God or you submit to something else. You submit to sin. You submit to the devil. There's no in-between. There's no nothingness. It's God or it's the enemy. So what are you choosing to submit yourself to in the first place? And James goes on and he says this. He says, what you need to do is just draw near to God. It's a simple phrase, but we need to unpack the significance of what drawing near really means, especially for us today. Drawing near in the Old Testament, if you think about Moses in the burning bush, one of the first things God said to Moses at the burning bush was, do not come near. And then when we're talking about Mount Sinai, when God was, was to come upon Mount Sinai, he told Moses to put a barrier up for the Israelites, lest they come up and be put to death. He told the Israelites not to come near to him. And then when he gave Moses the design for the tabernacle, that God would, would dwell in the Ark of the Covenant on this mercy seat, and that no one was to draw near except the high priest once a year. He said, do not draw near. There was always a barrier But then when God sent his only son on this earth to die for our sins, when Jesus Christ breathed his last breath on the cross, the veil was tore. And now you and you and you have the same access to God. 
through the, the finished work on the cross, you can draw near. How personal of a God do we serve who said nobody could do this before and now you have it personally. I just need you to submit. I need you to draw near to me. That's simple, but is it? Because this is what happens when we have to draw near. We become exposed. You see, every step we take towards God, it's a challenge. It's a conviction by the Holy Spirit. It's saying, I've got to get rid of all this. It's so much easier just to stay over here and not feel guilty about my sin. And that's why Christianity is hard, because it's hard to walk over here. It's hard to say, this is who I am, and humble myself before God and say, lay it all out, and this is me. But he's telling you that's where you need to reside in order to resist this temptation. In order to resist the devil, drawing near means you've already been given access, so go abide in him and the eternal fellowship that you have been given. But what happens when we become convicted and when we become challenged as we draw near to God? And this is what James is saying. It's not about the happiness. When he says to, to mourn, to wail, to weep, we could use the term lament, if you were with us, I think it was this fall. Don't correct me on the timeline. I don't even know what days are right now. But when we talk about lament, we spent a whole weekend dedicated to the idea of lament, where you would be broken over your sins or you would be broken over the hardships of life. You would make known your request to God and say, I don't understand why life is so hard and I don't understand why I can't get out of my sin, but I'm trusting you. So James is saying not to live in doom and gloom, but to understand those sufferings aren't for naught. Those sufferings, when you communicate with God properly, it's you placing your trust in him. And your sufferings, James already told us this, they, it gives us the ability, when we look at it this way, to consider our trials pure joy. And to, and to remain steadfast under trials so that we can be presented before God with the, with the crown of life. He's saying you, you go through this suffering, but it's for a purpose. And we don't often see that. It's hard to see, especially when we're talking about why would I want to suffer when I'm suffering over here, and as I come near to you, I'm supposed to suffer again in a different way? That's what's hard for us to come, come before God and say, Lord, humble me. Just, just use me. I don't know what it looks like but I'm giving you myself right now and I'm dedicating my life to you and I'm aligning with your will and not my own. And I'm gonna invite the worship team up and James is gonna kind of end on this note. It's, verses 11 and 12 are pretty straightforward, but I think we can draw something out of this because again, James is really good at this. Verse 11 says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He says, if you don't want to have fights, if you don't want to have quarrels, don't slander each other. Don't judge one another. Pretty straightforward, right? But James is trying to say, if we could consider, right, and we've talked about this in past sermons on James because he's already talked about it, 
the condition of our heart and our selfish ambition, if we could put those things in check, we wouldn't even consider slandering someone else or slandering a brother or sister in the faith or judging them based upon the way that they live because you are not a judge. God is the judge. But if we would look at the way we speak to people, we're probably considering the condition of our heart before we even say something. And we're probably allowing the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and be used in us by God. You see, James is, is saying, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't think through any, any circumstance that this would happen, but if you didn't slander someone, if you couldn't, like imagine like you, not even the condition of your heart, but imagine not being able to say anything bad or judging any brother or sister in Christ. Could you fight? I was laughing about it because I was like, are you going to yell nice things at each other? Have a good day. You too. God bless. Like, what are you going to say? That's the reality. Like, there's nothing that could come bad out of not considering slandering each other. The body of Christ was meant to be united and unified, not divided. And if we could recognize for a minute what matters, salvation. If we could consider that we're all saved by the same grace, by the same Son, that we're on the same walk, trying to get to the same place, could division occur? Or maybe we could be using our gifts and our talents and be reaching people and living the Great Commission through this. And James says, he's already told us all this. He says in the beginning of the book, to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. And then he taught us how to tame our tongue. And then he said, if you would just use godly wisdom, the fruits of that would be evident. And now he's saying, you should consider the way you speak to a brother or sister or judge the brother or sister. Because whether or not you want to admit it or not, when we do those things, we play the judge, but there's only one judge. So why not just submit to the one judge and live as a united body in Christ? So we stand so I can pray for you, please. So God, we just make these requests known before you. We know we're sinful by nature, but we thank you for the redemptive work done on the cross where you sent your only son to die for our sins and to cleanse us, to purify us, Lord. I pray that we can learn how to communicate to you in prayer, to make our requests known. Lord, I pray that, that we would learn to be a united body in Christ, and I pray that we would learn how to submit and how to be humble to you, God. God, you're, th you're the God that we serve, the God of the universe. And we just ask for this wisdom in whatever situations we're going through in life, that you would reveal to us how we can be united and no longer divided. So God, we submit ourselves to you. We humble ourselves to you and we trust you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You have poured out grace You brought me out of darkness You have filled me with peace 
giver of mercy, you're my help in time of need. Lord, I can't help but sing.
your promises are yes and amen. All your promises are yes and amen. Are faithful you are. Faithful forever you will be. Faithful you are. Yes, you are. All your promises are yes and amen. All your promises are yes and amen. All your promises are yes and amen. As you go about your week, I want you to consider that if you are in or enter into a fight or a quarrel with another believer, Ask yourself this, why? Why are you engaging in that? And I want you to consider this. Consider asking God how you can place yourself in submission to him and how you can be used by him. I want to thank you all for being here with us this week. Pray for traveling mercies as you go your separate ways. We love you guys. God bless.